Was Jesus really who his disciples claimed? Or were his disciples making it all up? This is a question that you must know how to answer if you are going to guide your children in the Christian worldview and build a legacy in your home. And if you are going to make an impact for the gospel in your local area and in your workplace, you need to know if Jesus really is who the Bible says that he is. Now, in scripture, one of the most powerful tools that God uses to authenticate the identity of Jesus Christ is prophecy. Today, we're going to look at certain prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. This is Worldview Legacy, the podcast from the Think Institute that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedekes. I am a former pastor who used to defend my faith the completely wrong way. Then God changed my attitude and my approach. And today I am the president and executive director of the Think Institute. We are a Christian teaching and outreach organization that helps regular believers to become worldview leaders to build a gospel legacy in their families and in their workplaces and in their local areas and to become the worldview leaders that their families and churches need them to be. If this is the kind of conversation that you enjoy and you'd like to get more of, you need to know about this. We are starting a brand new learning community very soon. It's a learning community, subscription-based, for you to take your learning to the next level. It's going to be seminary quality education with robust community and accountability that you're not going to be able to find anywhere else. I'm going to tell you all about that at the end of this episode. Today, we're talking about 33 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled that demonstrate his true identity without any shadow of a doubt, by the end of this episode, you are going to be able to defend the authenticity of who Jesus is straight from the Bible with strong biblical confidence. It's going to help you become even more based by God's grace. Now, we are wired as human beings to value prophecy and predictions. This is why people go to fortune tellers. I'm not saying you should go to a fortune teller. Don't go to a fortune teller. They're probably demonic. Most of them are, are, are at least hucksters. But this is why we we love phenomena like Nostradamus. If you're over 30, you remember the name Nostradamus. Nostradamus is this supposed prophet who lived hundreds of years ago, Michel, Michel Nostradamus or Michael Nostradamus. And I'll tell you how I first became acquainted with the idea of Nostradamus. Nostradamus started to be brought up in the popular zeitgeist in 2001. It was right after the tragic and horrific attacks on the Twin Towers in New York. All of a sudden, people started posting supposed prophecies from Nostradamus that talked about how the two pillars will fall and all these things. Now, here's the thing. It was a total hoax. Nostradamus never said anything about the Twin Towers falling. But people got really into these supposed prophecies. And I think that's because we are hardwired to believe that there is such a thing as prophecy. It's just something that is ingrained in us, something that we find valuable. We love the idea of prophecies. They fascinate us. And because of that, 
you would think that you would see more Christians arguing from prophecy to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, but you just don't see it enough. But that's what we're going to do today. Now, here's the challenge and the difficulty for atheists and skeptics. It certainly seems like Jesus fulfilled prophecy. This is really a very hard conclusion to get away from. It sure seems like there were predictions that were written about the Messiah 500, 1,000, 1,500 years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. And it really appears like Jesus fulfilled real prophecies. So what does the skeptic do? Well, they will issue this challenge. They will say the the supposedly fulfilled prophecies were made to appear that way by New Testament authors. They believed in Jesus and they wanted to convince others that he was the Messiah. And so what they would do is, according to this accusation, is the New Testament authors would write their books in such a way that it appeared like Jesus was fulfilling these prophecies. But in reality, they were lying. They were bending the truth. They were twisting the events so that it seemed like Jesus fulfilled these ancient prophecies. But really, it's because they believed in Jesus and they wanted others to believe in Jesus as well. They wanted to accumulate power for themselves, which if you know anything about what happened to the actual apostles, the idea that they were trying to accumulate power for themselves makes them just about the least successful power mongers in the world. They were not successful in that. Yes, they started a global movement, which took about 300 years to come to any kind of fruition, but they did not become powerful in their life. They were chased, persecuted, and struck down left and right like sheep led to the slaughter. Now, there's an inherent inconsistency when the skeptic makes this claim that we shouldn't believe the New Testament accounts of things because the apostles were merely trying to convince people that Jesus was Lord. They wanted people to believe in Jesus. Here's the inconsistency. It's saying that we ought to disbelieve a historical account just because the authors believed in what they wrote and they wanted others to believe it too. Think about how inconsistent that is. Should we really throw out all historical records every time we get the inkling that the person who's writing that historical record believes in what he's saying. I mean, that seems ludicrous. What these people are asking for is they're asking for a historical account that is completely impartial with no presuppositions, no worldview, who nonetheless still records that Jesus did and said these things. But that's not possible. Why would you ever expect that someone who didn't believe in Jesus would be following Jesus around, writing down what he's saying? Especially in the ancient world, when papyrus was not cheap and ink was not cheap. You wouldn't just write something, you know, for your local newspaper. They didn't have newspapers back then. So the idea of a completely impartial newspaper-like account of Jesus is just not realistic. Not only that, but no one is neutral. So the idea that you're going to get a neutral account of things, it's just not, it's not feasible. It's not realistic. And, and here's where the absurdity really sinks in. Follow me here. The skeptic says we shouldn't trust the historical accounts of Jesus' life and death, burial and resurrection, because 
they were biased and they were trying to convince people, their readers, that what they wrote is true. But by the same standard, we should therefore not believe anything that the skeptic writes. Why not? Because he is writing something that he wants us to believe, isn't he? He wants us to believe that what he is saying is true. But by his own standard, we shouldn't believe him because he's biased. He wants us to believe him. And if that's good for the apostles, if that's a good reason not to believe them, it's got to be a good reason not to believe the skeptic as well. So the, it, it's a totally inconsistent line of reasoning, and we should be able to very easily disregard it. It's absurd. Now, the Christian worldview goes down a lot smoother. Here's why. In the Christian worldview, there is such a thing as prophecy because God is behind the prophecy, but that doesn't mean that we are gullible as Christians. In fact, Christianity gives us a litmus test of being able to test supposed prophecies. If a prophet makes a claim and that claim does not come true, he is to be considered a false prophet. So when we are evaluating the supposedly prophetic claims of the Bible, we need to see if these events did come true. Now, unlike the skeptic, we're not going to rule out the possibility of prophecy from the beginning, but we are going to hold it to a rigorously high standard. Everything the prophet said must come true. So that is our litmus test, and that is our starting point. So Jesus certainly seems to have fulfilled prophecies. And as a skeptic, you're not going to be able to even really get off the starting block because you're, you've ruled out God from the beginning, but you've also ruled out the possibility that anybody can take your argument seriously from the beginning as well. But from a Christian perspective, we're going to go about things a little differently. We're going to approach this challenge from a Christian worldview, even for the sake of argument. We're going to invite the skeptic into our worldview, and we're going to look, and we're going to see, does it look like Jesus really did fulfill these prophecies, or are we dealing with an imposter where Jesus is not really the Messiah, not really the one that was prophesied about? Well, let's dive into it and let's see. Okay, here are the 33 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled out of a much longer list, but these are the 33 that I thought would most benefit you as you are defending your faith as a Christian man. Prophecy number one. The Messiah was going to be born of a virgin. We see that in Isaiah 7, 14, which says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So there's going to be a virgin. She's going to give birth to a son, and that son will have the title of being God with us. Well, guess what? That was fulfilled in Matthew 1, 18 through 25, which says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, that means engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So she was a virgin, and yet she was with child. And here we can put to bed, uh, put to rest any of these silly accusations that come from Latter-day Saints and atheists, which try to accuse the impregnation of Mary as some sort of act, or we could call it a uh, an intimate act, a physically intimate act. It was not because 
she was a virgin and she remained a virgin until Jesus was born. And so what we really have here is a miraculous creation of a physical human body and human nature, which is God in the flesh, the preexistent son of God becoming a new, newly created man. Even though Jesus preexisted his manhood as God the son, now he's becoming a man. All right, so that's the first one, just to give you a taste of what we're dealing with here. Now we're going to zip through the next 32 a lot quicker. So strap in, let's go. And if you have any questions and you're watching this live, feel free to drop your questions in the chat or in the comments, and I will get to them at the end. Here we go. Prophecy number two, born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, this is really interesting. There were two Bethlehems. He would be born in Bethlehem Ephratha, not the other Bethlehem. Sure enough, Matthew 2.1 says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. That's Bethlehem Ephratha. Number three, God calls him son. Psalm 2.7 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And guess what? In Matthew 3.17, a voice from heaven which was God the Father, told Jesus or announced about Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Pretty cool. God called Jesus his son. Numbers four through seven have to do with who the Messiah would be a descendant of. He would be a descendant of Abraham, according to Genesis 22, 18, a descendant of Isaac, according to Genesis 21, 12. He would be a descendant of Judah, according to Genesis 49, 10, and he would be a descendant of David, according to Jeremiah 23, 5, also uh, 1 Samuel 7, I believe. And guess what? Jesus was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Judah, and David. Next, the Messiah would be preceded by a messenger in the wilderness. We read about this in Isaiah 40, verse 3, where we read about the messenger in the wilderness, the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths for the Lord as he comes. And guess what? In Matthew 3, and also John chapter 1 and Mark, I believe Mark chapter 1, you read about John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the paths for the Lord. So far, that's eight prophecies, eight prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Eight. Now, you know what's really interesting? There was an old author writing in the 1960s by the name of Stoner. And Mr. Stoner once calculated the odds of one man fulfilling eight prophecies from the Old Testament. For eight prophecies to be fulfilled by one man in the Old Testament, do you know what the odds against that are? The odds are it's one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one in 100 quadrillion. That's the odds of one man fulfilling eight of the prophecies from the Old Testament. We've just looked at eight. So right now, what I just showed you, what I just read to you, there is a one in 100 quadrillion chance that any one man would fulfill all those prophecies. And Jesus fulfilled all eight of them. Here's the remarkable thing. We are nowhere near done yet. 
Let's keep going. Number nine says he would be rejected by the Israelites. We read about that in Isaiah 53, verse 3, and it comes true. It's fulfilled in John chapter 7, verse 5, and verse 48. Rejected by the Israelites. Number 10, he began his ministry in Galilee. He would come to Galilee. Isaiah 9, 1 through 2 says, In the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, also translated Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Matthew 4, 12 through 17, this is hundreds of years later, we read about Jesus and it says this, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, that's John the Baptist, he withdrew into, guess where? Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Does that sound familiar? In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So he's living in the land of Galilee, just as the prophet said that he would. Absolutely incredible. That's 10. Number 11, his side was pierced. Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Isn't that interesting? John 19, 34 says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So he was pierced, just exactly as Zechariah said. Now, one objection to this might be, that Zechariah is speaking about the Jewish people, whereas it was a Roman soldier who pierced Jesus. I wonder how you would answer this. Well, guess what? Jesus was crucified by the Romans, but he was also killed by the Jewish people. It was the Gentiles and the Jews who together conspired together to kill Jesus. Now, there were different motivations, but it is not a far cry to say that Jesus was killed by both Jews and Gentiles. So every Jewish person and every Gentile who looks to Jesus and mourns for the fact that Jesus died, if you've ever been moved to tears by the fact that Jesus died for your sins, this verse is being fulfilled in your life, which is pretty cool. Number 12, he was crucified. Here's the absolutely incredible and amazing thing about this. Get this. Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Jesus. At that time, do you know what was not a thing? Circumcision. Circumcision was not a thing when King David wrote Psalm 22. And yet listen to this. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Fast forward to Luke 23, 23, and it says, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. And guess how you're crucified? Guess what the method is for holding you onto the cross? They pierce your hands and your feet. Jesus was crucified, which was prophesied a thousand years before in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. Number 13, his bones were not broken. Absolutely amazing. In the Roman era, 
when someone was going to be crucified. To speed up the process of his death, the Roman soldiers would break his legs. And yet, Psalm 34.20 says that all of the Messiah's bones would be countable. In other words, they would be intact. And guess what? In John 19.33, we read that the soldier did not break Jesus' bones because he had already died. So there was no need to break his legs. So his bones were not broken, exactly as Scripture foretold. Number 14, the Messiah would have to come while the temple was still standing in Jerusalem. Psalm 118, verse 20, talks about the Messiah being in the house of God. And guess what? Jesus did come while the temple was still standing. You can read about that in Matthew 21, verses 12 through 15. Matthew 21, verses 12 through 15, talk about Jesus entering the temple. This also means that any messianic pretender who comes today, nowadays, must not be the Messiah because the temple is no longer standing in Jerusalem. All right, number 15, he was ridiculed. Psalm 109, verses, uh, verse 25 says, I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. And Matthew 27, 39 records that those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Isn't that interesting? It's the exact same language that Psalm 109 says would happen to the Messiah. All right, we're halfway through. Number 16, he was scourged. Now, to be scourged is to have a whip applied to your back with force. And that whip is not just a leather whip. It's got pieces of glass, uh, pieces of stone, shards of pottery that are affixed, uh, metal that are affixed to the end of the whip. And when the Roman soldiers would scourge the backs of their victims or of their um, their victim victim is probably the best word for it. The back would look like a field that had been plowed up and tilled up by a plow. So listen to Psalm 129 verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. And Matthew 27, 26 says, Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So Jesus was scourged in a very similar way to what Psalm 129 verse 3 said would happen. Number 17, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's from Zechariah 9, 9. And guess what? Matthew 21 verses 6 through 9 tell about Jesus entering into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And guess what he was riding? On a donkey. Now, this is one of those prophecies that a skeptic will look at and go, ah, that's just Jesus uh, pretending to be the Messiah, or he knew that Zechariah had said this, and therefore he was just playing the role. He had to come in to Jerusalem on a donkey because that's what Zechariah said he was going to do. Okay, a couple things about that. How do you respond to that? One, this absolutely does show that Jesus knew he was the Messiah, 100%. 
So no one would be able to say, Jesus didn't even think of himself as the Messiah. Yes, he did. And Matthew 21, 6 through 9 proves that. This was intentional on Jesus' part. But Jesus did not control the crowds. And Zechariah 9, 9 talks about the crowds uh, praising the Messiah as he comes into Jerusalem. So Jesus rode on a donkey, yes. But who's controlling the crowds? Why were the crowds worshiping him and praising him and saying, Hosanna, which means save now. That is a fulfillment of prophecy that shows that God is actually in control. And not only that, but sometimes you see prophecies that Jesus is intentionally fulfilling. Other times you see prophecies that he could have had no control over if he were just a mere man. For example, he was born in Bethlehem. You don't have control over where you're born. So you do have a good mix of prophecies that he was in control over versus prophecies that he was not. All right, number 18. He would visit the second temple, the rebuilt temple. Now, quick history lesson. In ancient the ancient world, Judah, the land of Judah, was conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and its people were deported. And they were deported and put into exile for seven, roughly 70 years. And then after the 70-year period ended, in the days of Daniel, the Jewish people were brought back into the land and they were allowed to rebuild the walls of the city and rebuild the temple. And the amazing thing is, in Haggai, Chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, it says this, talking about this second rebuilt temple. It says, I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You know what is amazing? In the first temple, the glory of God would come down and dwell among the people. But it was the second temple that Jesus Christ, the incarnate God-man, actually came and visited and taught and even cleansed the temple. So the prophecy is fulfilled. Not only would God visit this second temple, but he would do so in a more glorious way. And what is more glorious than the incarnate Son of God coming into the temple in a physical way to dwell with his people? That is just Truly incredible, truly amazing. So he visited the second temple, which, by the way, again, he cannot, the Messiah could not come today because the second temple is no longer in existence. Even if they were to rebuild the temple, it would not be the same temple. That would not be a fulfillment of that prophecy. So there was a very narrow window for the Messiah to come, and Jesus came within that window. Next, the Messiah the Son of God, would be called out of Egypt. In Hosea 11, verse 1, it says, the Lord says that out of Egypt I called my Son. And in Matthew 2.15, we read about the family of Joseph and Mary and Jesus who go into a little mini-exile in Egypt when King Herod is tragically killing all the children in the Bethlehem area. But then Herod dies and goes to his eternal reward. And the angel tells Joseph it is safe to come back to the land of Judea. And that is the fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy that 
out of Egypt I called my son. It's also, interestingly, an example of Jesus recapitulating the story of Israel. Israel was called out of Egypt in the ancient times when they were led out of slavery. And Jesus, the truer and better Israel, the fulfillment of everything that is that was promised to Israel, Jesus is called out of Israel himself. So pretty cool. All right. Uh, chapter, I mean, example 20, prophecy number 20. He was killed before Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, another word for killed is to be cut off, as in to be cut off from the land of the living. Listen to this prophecy from Daniel, chapter 9, verse 26, written about five or six hundred years before Christ. It says, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. The word anointed one means Messiah. It means Christ. He will be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So the enemy, the people of the ruler, the emperor, of the power who's going to come, that was Rome, they are going to come in like a flood into the city of Jerusalem where the sanctuary was, that's the temple, and they were going to destroy the temple. But before that happens, the Messiah, the Son of Man, has to be cut off. And that is exactly what happened. Jesus was killed about 40 years, or roughly maybe 37 to 40 years, prior to the Titus, uh, the general Titus coming into Jerusalem and destroying the city and the sanctuary. So the prophecy was fulfilled exactly as Daniel said that it would be. Next, number 21, he ascended to heaven in a cloud. Really amazing, because we're going to have another prophecy in just a minute. That you're going to see that it was prophesied that he would ascend. But here it says that he ascended in a cloud and actually entered into heaven through a cloud. Really, really cool. Check this out. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. It says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. This is a heaven's eye view of the son of man, the king over all the earth, coming in the clouds, entering into heaven through a layer of clouds. Now, go to Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And it says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So here you've got the earth's eye view. As you're looking up, you see Jesus rising up into heaven. This is after he rose from the dead. And a cloud is taking him out of view. He's being hidden behind a cloud is another way of putting it, but it's as if Jesus is traveling into the clouds. And then you've got the heaven's eye view in Daniel where he's coming through those clouds into heaven. So it's almost as if the clouds are a gateway into heaven. I'm not saying literally, but narratively, this is what's happening. It's part of the story and it's true and it's incredible and it's a fulfilled prophecy. Number 22 the Holy Spirit descended upon him. In Isaiah 61, 1, it says that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, would be upon him. In Matthew 3, 16 and 17, we read about the Holy Spirit coming down onto Jesus and 
anointing him and, and covering him. So the Holy Spirit did descend upon Jesus. That is actually what made him the anointed one. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Number 23, he would be buried in a rich man's grave. Isaiah 53, 9. This is so specific that it really blows the mind. It really boggles the mind to think that anyone might not believe that this is absolutely fulfilled prophecy from God. Isaiah 53, verse 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Well, guess what? In Matthew 27, verses 57 through 60, you can read about a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. He was a disciple of Jesus, and he goes to Pilate. Pilate is the governor who had Jesus executed. And Joseph of Arimathea asks Pilate if he can have the body of Jesus. And what does he do? He wraps it in a clean linen shroud and lays it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. So here we have Jesus dying, being executed like an evil man, and being given over to a rich man, and being put among the rich in his death. Absolutely amazing. Number 24, he was silent before his accusers. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says that he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. Remember, this is hundreds of years before Jesus. And then Matthew 27, 12 through 14, says that when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And this amazed the governor. It amazed the people around, but Jesus did not give an answer when he was accused. Exactly as Isaiah said and prophesied. Number 25. He was cursed by hanging on a tree. Now, this one's a little bit more obscure, but you have to go to Deuteronomy 21-23 for some really serious foreshadowing, and I think this is a prophecy. In Deuteronomy 21-23, it says, Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. And then in Galatians 3, 10-13, we read that Jesus took our curse by being hanged on a tree. And all throughout the Bible, we have this thread that there was going to come a son of man, a son of the woman, a son of God, who was going to take the curse of our sin upon himself. And in so doing, he would defeat sin. Well, if he's going to become a curse, he needs to be hung on a tree. And that's exactly what happened. So there's a strong allusion here back to Adam and Eve taking the fruit they should not have taken from the tree. And now here you've got Jesus being associated with that same curse by being hung on a tree and becoming a curse. Amazing. First, or I mean, number 26, prophecy number 26, his garments were divided up. In Psalm twenty-two eighteen, David prophesied that the Messiah's garments would be divided up and they would cast lots for his garments. And that is exactly what happened when Jesus was being crucified. John 19, verses 23 and 24, talk about that, how they divided up his garments according to lots. In other words, they, they rolled bones, they, they um, threw dice for his garments. Really amazing. I don't know how you can look at this fulfilled prophecy and still not believe that Jesus is the Christ. Next, number 27. 
he was accused by false witnesses, malicious witnesses. Now, a malicious witness is not somebody who's telling the truth about you. In Psalm 35, verse 11, it says, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. In other words, they're trying to trap me in my own words. In Matthew 26, 59, we read about Jesus being on trial and who accused Jesus of all kinds of horrible blasphemous crimes, false and malicious witnesses, exactly as the prophecy said. 28, his friends stood far off. In Psalm 38, 11, that's what it says will happen. It says that his friends stood far off. In other words, they're ashamed. They are embarrassed and they're quite frankly they're afraid of what's going to happen to them luke 23 49 says that that is exactly what happened to jesus during his crucifixion number 29 he would be called the messiah or in greek christos or christ also known as the anointed one psalm 45 verses 7 and 8 says you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness therefore god your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. In other words, he is anointed. He is the anointed one. You can read about this in Psalm 2 as well, where it talks about the nations raging against God and his anointed one. This is where the concept of Messiah, Christ, this is where this comes from. And Jesus is absolutely called the Christ. He's called the anointed one. Next, number 30, he ascended to heaven. Psalm 68, 18 says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Well, in Luke 24, 51, Jesus blesses his disciples and then he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So this is a very similar prophecy to what we looked at before, where Jesus went up into the clouds. But this is a little different. This is after winning the victory, Jesus ascends up to heaven. As the This is more him as the victorious conqueror, um, leading captives in his train. In other words, he is a victorious, mighty, conquering war hero. And he's ascending on high. And that is exactly what happens in Luke 24 51. He has risen from the dead. He's blessing his people. He's giving them blessing. And then he's carried up into heaven. Number 31, he had a zeal for the temple that he was consumed by, so to speak. John 6, or Psalm 69 verse 9 says that zeal, that, uh, that he would have zeal for the Lord's house. And guess what? In John 2, verse 17, you can read about how Jesus went into the temple and overturned tables, wound up a whip and started whipping and overturning tables, driving out the money changers because zeal for the Lord's house had consumed him exactly as Psalm 69, 9 said that it would. Number 32, you still with me? All nations will call him blessed. Psalm 72, 17 teaches us very powerfully that the Messiah was not just going to be a Messiah for Israel or for the Jewish people, but would be a Messiah for the nations, for the Gentiles as well. It says, may his name endure forever. 
his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. All nations call him blessed. Guess what? In today's world, this is being fulfilled. The fame of Jesus Christ is being spread to all nations. And we have the ultimate fulfillment of this promised to us in Revelation 7 verse 9, where it talks about a great multitude that is innumerable from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, calling him blessed, calling him Lord. So this eschatological picture from Revelation is yet to come in the future, but it's being fulfilled in our time right now. And finally, number 33, Gentiles seek him. Now, a Gentile is a non-Jewish person. Isaiah 1, verse 11 says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So, when is this fulfilled? This is fulfilled in John 12, 18 through 21, when there are Gentiles who specifically say that they want to come to Jesus. And they would, they, they would like to see Jesus. And it's also being fulfilled today. All day, every day, the Gentiles are coming to him and they are inquiring and they are, are learning about Jesus. Oh, you know what? It's Isaiah 11.10, not Isaiah 1.11. Isaiah 11.10. All right, so uh, that is being fulfilled today. So the answer is clear. How do we know Jesus really is who the Bible says that he is, who his followers said that he is? The answer could not be more clear. Jesus fulfilled over 356 Old Testament prophecies. The odds of one man fulfilling just eight is one in 100 quadrillion. The odds of a man fulfilling 48 is one in 10 to the 157th power. There is no way to believe that concepts like probability, evidence, historical study are meaningful concepts and not conclude that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is from God. Turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. Now, if you are watching this and you're a believer. I hope this has strengthened your faith. I know it strengthens mine every time I look at these prophecies. If you're not yet a believer, you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to wrestle with the reality that Jesus Christ fulfilled over 300 prophecies. Now, there are a couple of links down in the show notes where you can check out articles that go over the rest of the prophecies. I only mentioned 33 today. But you need to seriously wrestle with the truth of who Jesus is. No mere man by chance could possibly fulfill all these prophecies. So what's the answer? He must be exactly who the Bible says that he is. Because God must be guiding and controlling history such that Jesus fulfills all of these prophecies. And if God is doing all this 
to authenticate the identity of Jesus Christ, then he is someone that you need to know. All right, now, let me tell you about our forthcoming learning community. It's called the Hammer and Anvil Society. And the three values of the Hammer and Anvil Society are brotherhood, boldness, and biblical soundness. The Hammer and Anvil Society is our semi-secretive society for learning and growth and brotherhood and camaraderie and accountability. And I want to invite you to it. I would love for you to join me in the next iteration, the next round of the Hammer and Anvil Society. We're going to be launching very, very soon. There's going to be a learning cohort that you can be a part of. And there's going to be courses that you can take to further your learning. This is going to be seminary level teaching taught by yours truly, by Joel Sedeckes, for the most part. And you're going to experience the benefit of iron sharpening iron in a robust, tightly knit community that is going to challenge you and hold you to the level of Christian manliness and discipline and diligence that you need to be holding yourself to. So this is something that's been in the works for a long time. We ran the Hammer and Anvil Society back in 2020. Back then we did it in person uh, for the most part, but then COVID hit and we had to go online for some of it. The Hammer and Anvil Society is going to be subscription-based. If you would like to know more details about what exactly the modules are going to be that you're going to have a chance to learn, what the certificates are that you can earn. If you would like to know when we're launching, do yourself a favor. Go to thethink.institute slash society and you will be put on the mailing list and I will let you know exactly when we're launching and how you can get involved. I'll let you know how much it's going to cost each month for the subscription. It will be on par with the seminary classes that would cost you twelve to $2,500 to take one of these classes. And you're going to get it for a lot less than that. But there, there will be some skin in the game because I'm a big believer in you get what you pay for and you put into something what you want to get out of it. So go to thethink.institute slash society. Check it out. Thank you for listening to this installment of the Worldview Legacy Podcast. My name is Joel Sedeckes. Again, I'm the president and executive director of the Think Institute. We're a Christian teaching and outreach organization that helps equip regular believers to become worldview leaders. And we are based by God's grace. See you next time.